No, it did not. Oh, yes, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah, we've been kicking this down the road. It's a really tough uh, reading. It took us a long time to get through, and we had to read a ton of ancillary text to do it. And there's every chance that our understanding of it, uh, I will say, is is limited. It's a very difficult uh, grouping. So we'll get through why that is in a second. Um, all right. So here's the thing with, uh, with chapter three. Uh, the, the nature of the book, as we've been discussing it, is uh, overall, to summarize, uh, an early discussion, the first chapter is essentially uh, their larger scale treaties, an explanation of how desiring machines work, the body without organs, top level across the board. Uh, chapter two gets into uh, a lot more of the uh, Freudian uh, psychoanalytic side uh, and why they believe what they do and them proving that out. Chapter three, they take a hard turn into universal history and ethnology, anthropology, many, many soft sciences uh, and the history of things. And it is not a place I am particularly versed in regardless uh, in the best of times, let alone in all of the things that they begin to refer to. Uh, the conversations essentially inside of that chapter, the writing, kind of covers a handful of big points. And this is what we're gonna to try to cover today. So please, if you have a uh, comment, if you have uh, questions, if you have anything along the way, don't hesitate to discuss. Uh, but essentially the agenda today is going to be us talking through the socius as a concept, how the socius uh, works, what it is sort of at all, because we have a lot of people who have generalized misunderstandings around it. And it took me a while myself. We're then going to get into uh, essentially uh, a few of the other terms that they have around this coding, territorialization, deterritorialization, reterritorialization, and all of that. And then we're going to dive into their universal history, which is a tale through the three socii, uh, the three sociuses um, that uh, they sort of have broken apart. Uh, the first being uh, the primitive, the second being uh, that of the despot, and the third being that which we're in now, which is that of capital. Each of these function differently. All of them work differently. These are not easy subjects. As we get going, do not hesitate to go, well, what about X? Uh, there is language they use that I will say is problematic at best uh, now. So we can talk through some of that. Uh, I'm going to do my best not to refer to anything as Asiatic, for example. Uh, and there's a good amount of that sort of noble savage uh, mentality in a lot of this. So uh, that's my long explanation of why this is going to take a moment. Oh, and Roger joined us. We've been, we are very happy to have you here, Roger. We've been seriously not doing this chapter until you join because this is, I mean, this is your baby. I just came to uh, specify <laughs> the word usage in French for certain problematic moments in this chapter. So the first thing I think we want to go over is uh, we want to start with where they start, which is what is associus? Uh, it's a term that they come up with, and it's a thing that they describe that, again, adds to their materialist understanding of the psychology, the psychoanalytic, the, the way that uh, repression and things work within society. Just as we have a body without organs, a subject has one. We have that produced, and that kind of, you know, disconnects our... our uh, or desiring machines, it allows us to sort of have recordings over time. It organizes how our desire machines sort of work and what they're attracted to. Just like that, except at the large social scale for social machines, the socius operates. It organizes production 
and the production of flows specifically, not production in the sense of uh, kind of the pure form that Marx talks about, but overall flows uh, across all of it. The, the nature of the socius is about giving sort of form and value to how things move within society. That's my understanding of the term socius at a very light level. Jack, Roger, anyone? Yeah, and I would, um, you know, when we talk socialist, we talk about social machines as well. And, uh, you know, there's 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 a, a thing going on in France at the time with uh, André Lougourin, with Simondon and all those people. It's the techno-social uh, assemblages, if, if I can say in English. So it, when we talk about the socialist, it's, it's not this idealist, you know, form into the ether that is out there you know it, it's something that is so, social and technical always you know when i say technical it's material so we need to always keep this in mind as we will go through the reading uh this is this is the basis of like the understanding of like an imminent kind of ontology that is going on through their uh, their ideas no, socialist does a few things, and this is where we start getting into some of the more important concepts that get introduced a little bit earlier, uh, especially when it comes to the desiring machines. Uh, one of those big ones is anti-production. Um, anti-production is the thing that uh, basically is utilized within the body without organs to cause our desiring machines to disconnect, to not do things, to, to create that primal repression, as uh, uh, Freud uh, would call it. Uh, the, the, the nature of this, uh, is basically it organizes and helps sort of give determinate directions to desiring machines. Again, thinking about it at the micro level, the, the subject level, uh, anti-production operates in a very different place because it also has this other problem, uh, because it organizes and because it connects with desiring machines and kind of sets them apart. It has the ability to cause, uh, desiring machines to be, as the term they use often is trapped or caught inside of, uh, you know, larger uh, nets, uh, nets that sort of force desire to go where it shouldn't be through improper use of the disjunctions, as we talked about through the syntheses and uh, uh, through uh, paralogisms that we went over. So this is, this is the problem with anti-production there. One of the one of the challenges is to talk about this sort of throughout society. How how do we have these same challenges happen? How do people on the large scale? How do these things get repressed? How do these things come back down into people? And so we we have to talk about not just how the unconscious is ordered, but because we've given shape to this machinic unconscious, we need to also talk about the shape given to the machinic society, and the shape given to that, the thing that organizes that the socius is what sort of creates this anti-production to give shape to production within the social machines and within social interaction. Uh, specifically, what it generally does, uh, and Roger, you can correct me on this, but my understanding is the most part anti-production actually helps us uh, as a society uh, organize the expenditure of surplus. I, I think we left the, uh, the uh, French filter on. Roger, your mic might be uh, being filtered. Can you uh, talk for us? Oh, I, I was not saying anything, you know, I was... <laughs> oh, that's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Um, so one of, the, one of the turns that they make here, and it's an important one to talk about that happened around this time, is the discussion they have specifically around how society and flows operate. Because we've talked about the flows of desire. We'll come back to uh, uh, anti-production. Flows of desire as they move throughout our unconscious and they connect. We, I know we paused for Roger for no reason. 
as these flows connect and as they kind of move around within our unconscious, uh, they get little bits cut off here and there, they get combined, the fits and starts of machines, all that good stuff. The, the flows of society at large, very often uh, when we talk about why do flows exist and what are they sort of determined for, how is society organized, there's a handful of schools of thought. One of the really important ones that happened around this time was a discussion around the idea of, oh, oh crap, I have it open here, I have too many tabs open. Um, new theorist who came up with the concept that, well, actually, no, it's not so much that we're focused on production being something that is about consumption, but actually the reason we organize society as we do is in order to gauge excess and how excess is expended, that excess of production is actually how we organize society. Uh, who was this? Uh, who was that that they referenced? Jack, we were going over this. Well, they go over like, uh, so they talk about the gift, right? Which I think is um, Marcel. The potlatch. Yeah. So right, it's the, more fundamentally for them, it's going to be the creation of, um, right? How do you code flows of desire, right? Um, through a miraculous, through an inscriptive surface. Right, and in doing so, because you've got uh, a kind of body without organs or the socius, now you've got production, the production of production taking shape to produce surplus value, and at least for primitive society. It was uh, a bataille. Uh, because this was one of the readings we had very early on uh, that Craig from Acid Horizon, who actually has a few great readings on this, I recommend. Um, the bataille came up with a notion called uh, uh, expenditure. Uh, yes, well, we're talking about expenditure in the accursed share. Um, the, to quote uh, Holland's reading of it, expenditure already possesses in Bataille psychological and anthropological dimensions, but it is primarily the latter that concerns us. Uh, Bataille's insights are important that had he had not existed, schizoanalysis would have to have invent him. Bataille insists really organize, uh, society, Bataille insists, organizes itself around needs and the production of use value to meet needs is not the case, uh, as necessary as such production may be to all forms of social life. Rather, social organization is always based on the expenditure of excess and productive activity derives its meaning and purpose from such expenditure. The way that, uh, for example, the bourgeois naturally blow out tons of money and have naturalized excess through the way that they spend cash. It's ridiculous. It's at these insane levels. The examples Bataille talks about expressively um, is uh, through uh, potlatch, which is a Native, Native uh, American uh, sort of institution where instead of giving gifts, uh, oh, this is something of value I'm giving you, uh, and you gain something of value, it's instead to be thought of actually parting with things and letting things go, the gifting economy. So instead of, uh, you know, me gaining uh, prestige by getting given a gift, it's instead the opposite, where I like Jack so much and I want to raise my standards and my, my standing in society, so I give him something that's ridiculously over-the-top expensive that costs me a great deal. And everyone looks at me and goes, wow, he must have a lot. He must be cool. And I raise my standards within society that way. It is a twist on the sort of common way of thinking through these things. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's unique, uh, but it's important that we sort of talk through that. Roger, Jack, anyone have anything to add to that? Because it's a really important concept. Uh, yeah, I'll start there. Um, okay, so one of the main aspects of this kind of economy, uh, right, so this is not, they take a lot of pain to say that this is not an exchangist economy, right? So that means we're not talking about 
Um, we're not talking about barter as a primary thing any more than we're talking about the exchange or the equivalencies of um, different commodities. For Deleuze and Guattari drawing on these thinkers, right, which I guess would really be Moss, Bataille, and Nietzsche primarily, without going into all the other anthropologists, um, this is functioning. It's, it's not simply that Brutz likes me a lot, although I'm flattered. <laughs> um, it's uh, a form of debt relationship for the, uh, Deleuze and Guadri here, drawing all the way back on Nietzsche. Um, right, so this is about the shifting of debt. This is about uh, mobile, uh, I guess they call it mobile blocks of debt, right? So creditor and debtor uh, relationships that actually um, uh, are conditioned for the gift economy in the first place. I think what what I'm missing here is is sort of the I'm sorry to say but I'm I'm a bit confused so far because I'm kind of missing the framework for those ideas of expenditure and and uh, and gifting. Sure. Um I can give you some pages that go they have a uh, kind of a complex argument that we're not going to go too deep into. So um, I'll say some words and I'll give you some pages to look at there. But um, for them, so there's a way of which his, universal history is retrospective for Deleuze and Guattari. And this is very important for them because they're accessing history uh, through the present, right? So they don't think that they're stepping back into time and marching forward. They understand that their history and these accounts of the different um, territorialities are very much uh, only possible through the present. Right, so that's one major point is they're not, they don't think they're actually taking the time machine back in time, right? Uh, this is important because when we talk about exchange relations in something like capitalism, right? So like commodity relationships and that, there is, um, I think for Deleuze and Guattari, a problematic tendency to try and read universal history, to try and read different societies more fundamentally in terms of exchangeism, right? In terms of commodity production on that. For and losing real quick, water. Real quick, uh, exchangeism, to just put a really fine point on it, uh, is uh, directed at Levi Strauss. Uh, Strauss basically traced back history and said that essentially society is, and all these things are about uh, exchanging goods. That uh, as you go back in time, everything's about exchanging women, words, stories, prestige, all of this stuff. Uh, that is how societies are built and how they're formed through exchangeism. And they wholly disagree with that. But just as a very fine point on what exchangeism is to contrast. Oh, that's perfect. Because that's what that's what I was about to say. You know, it's the, the criticism of the structural exchanges conception of uh, relations. So I think you're completely right there. And uh, I'll let you go. So go, go ahead, Jack. Sorry. Um, I just wanted to like, because it's, Again, these things we want to, I want to try to put fine points on definitions as we're talking because this shit can get really complicated, uh, Misha, mm -hmm. for sure. And before we go, like it's um it's it's linked to the debates of the time as, as well, you know, in France when they were uh, having those anthropological debate of you know the universal structure of society and uh, how society is being structured. So, you know, it's this move from structuralism to a machine like uh, thinking it it's this whole effort of getting out of what is the canon of the time within the academia. 
Oh, we got to note too, it's not just the Levi-Strauss part because they're bringing in commodities and that. There's also an economic dimension, right? So there's like, obviously there's Marxism to a point, but there's even more fundamental things like we see in Adam Smith, this, um, this, this idea that these societies operate primarily through bargaining and through commodities. Well, and so their, their take, as I get it and I understand it, is that uh, exchangeism is how we've looked back. And it's easy to do that. Like if I were to say, hey, look back uh, long ago, they would basically, these uh, right now, tribes will trade women for a dowry. My daughter will marry your family if you give us gold and cow and land. And uh, that kind of thing uh, happens. Now, why is the question? Now, for Levi Strauss, the larger story that he tells is that it's about exchangeism, that the goal was that uh, how society would be organized is about exchanging one thing for another. Their argument is, wait, hold back. Uh, and they took from Bataille they went, well, actually, what if it's a system of debt that instead it's not directly exchangeism, uh, but actually a system of debt uh, that is actually what happens. And it takes really, really different forms depending on the socius that it is taking place in. Uh, so a, a woman would be exchanged for these things. This stuff happens, but it's not for the reason of direct exchanges and that there's other rules that happen around it. Please, Lou, if you're here, I'd love to hear from you because that's how I understood it. Yeah, and if and if I can go like a little bit just before Lou goes, um, you know, when we talk about Levi-Strauss, we talk about, um, oh shit, I forgot the term in English, hereditary relations, you know? of inheritance from you know from uh in into like a tree like or like a vertical kind of passage of wealth and stuff so we exchange women to make things reproduce in the future I, i'll you're about to say what was the term what is it the affiliative and declension yeah affiliation yeah so there's there's the whole criticism of affiliation and then you know they move to alliance and alliance is a more imminent kind of type of connection so basically like the history of wealth or wealth itself is emerging from these connections into this 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 universe of debt instead of this universe of linear passage so i i preface this with that i'm not incredibly well read in um, in Levi's cross but um, so my problem with the current characterization we have standing of exchanges in relationship to Levi-Strauss is that it's very much like a trade, uh, a trade relationship that you've outlined. And I don't think that works um, because Levi-Strauss picks up this whole thing from Marcel Mauss, as we've said, and um, especially in the um, structures of... of, of um, whatever that the name with affiliations and alliances is sorry don't remember the english title um so muscle mouse starts with the with the um gift not with the exchange and he he sees this very um common thing in all kinds of cultures that people give gifts to or groups exchange gifts and um this the gifts the gifts are always given voluntarily but if you really look it's not really voluntary there there is a silent uh, silent um 
imperative to give a gift. Um, like in our in 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 our society um, or in his society, um, he he traces this to something like Christmas gifts, where you feel like an obligation to 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 um, to give a gift back if you've received gifts in the past. Um, and this is the kind of relationship that Mars is uh, primarily interested in um, at first, that um, there are all these gifts, uh, these gifts given voluntarily, but if you don't give the gifts voluntarily, you'll be, you'll be uh, sanctioned for it. And um, Structuralism and Lévi-Strauss generalize this a bit, and um, specifically they bring it into um, uh, relation, family relations, um, relationships between family, right? That's the whole affiliation and alliance thing, um, where, 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 um, where he analyzes the structures of um, families in terms of these kinds of gifts. So women are gifted uh, or exchanged in this sense. They are given as a gift without a direct payment in that sense, but it is expected that there will be uh, um, at some point um, a, comp and compensation, a compensation in form of another woman that comes into the family um, and that's that's uh, that this isn't a direct exchange uh, like uh, in an exchange as a trade where the person that receives something something gives something is really important for this because this enables um, the whole point of the structure um, that it's not just two families that are linked, but that there is kind of a rotation of gifts um, through a whole, well, let's call it society because I'm not sure what a better English word is, but uh, like a whole group. No, no, I think, I think that works. I'm, I'm going to jump in because I want to, because I'm trying to understand this too. And I, to your, to your first point, Leo, I just want, like none of us know, I don't think we have anyone, maybe Roger, and a few others, but I don't have any background in Strauss. I've read a handful of things and this book. So I'm kind of making some leaps based on some stuff I've read and scanned. So let me let me try to say it differently. Um, uh, the, the challenge they're making then is not necessarily with direct exchangeism and all that. I may have said it wrong. Uh, let me try to say it differently. Um, when, when Strauss talks about uh, a society, he talks about exchanges that are essentially uh, equivalent, that I give a thing, you give a thing, we're done, and that is sort of in the past. The book's closed on that. Uh, Deleuze has... No, no sorry, I, I just stopped you there, because that's exactly not what's happening. What's happening is I give a thing, I receive a thing. It's not I give you a thing, I, you give me a thing. That uh, the person receiving is not necessarily the person uh, giving is a really important point there. Because uh, that Strauss? is... Or with Deleuze, in Lévi-Strauss, because it's that's what what makes this more than what makes this uh, whole societal relation not just a relationship between two people or two families, but um, a relationship between all the families of the society, 
or the group, the village, whatever. Yeah, I think he's right about that because you have to have, I mean, this is why um, incest will become taboo, right? You have to have a way of promulgating that. Um, to give a quote in support of what Lou was saying, this is page 185, there's a question that Marcel Mauss at least left open. Is that primary in relation to its change? Or is it merely a mode of its change, a means in the service of its change? But Levi-Strauss seems to have closed the question again with a categorical reply. That is no more than a superstructure, a conscious form whereby the unconscious social reality of its change is converted into cash. What is involved is not a theoretical discussion of the first principles of anthropology, the whole notion of social practice and the postulates conveyed by this practice are at issue here and the whole problem of the unconscious. For if its change underlines everything, why is it that what takes place looks like anything but an exchange? Why must it be a gift or a counter gift and not an exchange? And why is it necessary that the giver also be in the position of someone who has been robbed? So as to demonstrate clearly that he does not expect an exchange, not even a deferred exchange. So to, to give some analysis, as I take it, um, I, I so I agree with what you're saying, Lou. I get the impression that Levi-Strauss, um, he does have this superstructure of debt, but it sounds like Deleuze and Guattari think he also has, um, he's making exchanges in the kind of primary aspect of that. Right, and the reason I think that is because they're right. Debt is no more than a superstructure, a conscious form whereby the unconscious social reality of its change is converted into cash. So like, I guess I gotta be careful here because it does sound like debt is the superstructure here. But I get the impression Levi-Strauss doesn't go far enough into debt and uh, I, focuses on its change. Well, I think, so to put a fine point on it, my understanding is that Levi-Strauss specifically uh, believes disequilibrium is uh, consequences or pathological, whereas uh, they believe uh, more in the direction of Leach's critique of him that it is functional and fundamental to how society operates and uh, not so much as a secondary or superstructure, that it's fundamental at the basic level. That's my understanding because that's what they say. Uh, uh, however, the problem is altogether different. It is a question of knowing if the disequilibrium is pathological and a manifestation of consequences, as Strauss maintains, or functional and fundamental, as Leach argues. Uh, they lean heavily towards the Leach as they start talking about uh, all of this. Uh, one, page 187. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. they... Oh, go ahead, yeah. Roger. Yeah, and I think at 187, you get the same, you know, um, when they say uh, Deleuze and Guattari, the way they criticize Levi-Strauss, and they say that it tends to postulate, I'm, I'm quoting right now, tends to postulate the kind of primary equilibrium of prices, a primary equivalence or equality in the underlying principles, which allows it to explain that the inequalities are necessary introduced as part of the consequences. So, uh, so, so basically the structure um, gives all of this, you know, it gives the position of people and it gives the, the cost and the value of the exchange. So there's this all, you know, um, kind of immaterial kind of precondition to the materiality of uh, society. So, and I think they want to reverse that. They want to see like how stuff is being made instead of saying, you know, it is already in a blueprint behind the scene. I think Lou's writing a response to us, though. 
let's give him a chance here. Uh, no, I, I'm 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 not directly responding. I think what was said isn't necessarily. Uh, I, I don't think that contradicts what I said specifically. What with the um, equilibrium, because um, that's like how the how the structure is put in motion and what trade is put in motion not so much how the connections are built and i was more on the level of how the connections connect things <laughs> sorry mm -hmm. i i think your take on strauss is i think you're right about what you're saying though i, I do too i think the the thing here that we we got to um put together is that Right. I think Lou's got it right because that seems to be what the Deleuze and Guadar are going to criticize. Um, but it's important that we maintain that juxtaposition because they build on a lot of this, right? Right. They're gonna they start out by addressing like the circulation of women and saying that the problem isn't how women circulate, right? Women can circulate themselves. They're going to get into the problem of the more fundamental debt relationship that um is a condition for that exchange in the first place, right? So even that relationship of power um, or the way women function in this sense as something that's going to be exchanged, which gives them a peculiar sort of power nonetheless, um, that this is all a condition of, of the debt relationships in relation to the territorial machine of the earth and that this is promulgating through that representation of that. Right, there's something fundamental before we even get to the notion of exchange. That's a condition for exchange. Yeah. Mm. So, so if we if we want to switch stuff around and like just just make like two templates, the template of the structure or structuralism in general is to say that something is already there and it gives, uh, you know, the rules of what's going to happen in reality, but. What Deleuze and Guattari, like following Nietzsche, will say, well, there's never that. It's always like a kind of, there's, there will always offer like a sort of eminent critique saying, you know, exchange is primordial to the structure. Exchange makes the structure. So the structure is actually a consequence of this form of exchange. It can be a template, but the template is always, you know, secondary to um, this, this primordial exchange, but also exchange really depends on you know the precondition of the material and the fluxes that are there and that can be exchange well and again i think so how i read this let, let me just step back because there's a lot of specifics here but overall how i read this early part is essentially that they're trying to do here to the social machines and to the large scale you know, the molar aspects of society what they just kind of finished in chapter two doing for the molecular for the desiring machines and for the body without organs to talk about, no, that's not where things really start. This is not really what's happening. These are all byproducts. These are all secondary, and the actual functioning is in a different place. That's a lot of what this argument is kind of do is, you know, you didn't take your argument far enough, essentially, is what they're saying to, uh, you know, they're joining Leach in his reading of uh, Levi Strauss to continue that and go deeper, essentially. That's how I read this part, to make it very simplified. Yeah, I think that works because, right, so this is where you have the fundamental aspect of the socius and, the, right, the production that even makes um, something light circulation possible, and not only possible, but gives it a, a kind of exigence, right? Its necessity is in relation to the socius's role 
and it thereby um, can take place, right? I think they even say something to the effect of like, it's not a question of whether or not women can be circulated. It's a question of whether or not the socius um, makes that move, right? Mm-hmm. Pushes production in that in that way as opposed to a different way. And if I can offer something about Nietzsche, I just like open open it back up. But in a genealogy of the morals, uh, page eighty three, yeah, um, he, he says something like this: "Here's for the first person stood face to face with person. Here for the first time, person weighted itself with person. No stage of civilization, however inferior it might be, you know, really talking about the primitive society, but that's Nietzsche, you know, as yet been found without a trace of this relationship being noticeable to fix price, to adjust values, to invent equivalents, to exchange things. All this has to such an extent preoccupied the first and earliest thought of man that in a certain sense, it constitutes thinking itself. So thinking is not something that has to do with the structure is, is, it's a real life politics. So they're turning to the real-life politics of the exchange of indebtedness, how you are actually connecting and you know entangling yourself with the other person. Uh, that creates a structure and an ongoing system that is being built on those real relationships. Yeah, that's and I think that's really important because for Levi Strauss, right? If I if I follow correctly, and it sounds like you were talking about this earlier, he's going to make declension. Uh, kind of the primary aspect of the system, right? Uh, the affiliative more directly, whereas the losing so, watery. Oh, go ahead. So, 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 so it's the same thing as psychoanalysis about daddy, mommy, child instead of Linda and John and Tommy, you know. But it's the, the real society is Linda, John, and Tommy, you know. It's uh, we, but but there's there's this reversal into the way of seeing things. Which we will get into. Uh, don't jump too far ahead because uh, I think we, I want to go over a couple more terms so we can dive in as well. Uh, just real quick, uh, I did use the term molar and molecular. Uh, they use this, uh, and I can go over this quickly. Feel free if anyone disagrees. Um, molar and molecular is a reference to basically, uh, let's, talk, let's call it uh, meta degrees of a thing. Uh, molecular is when we're talking about, say, a single uh, desiring machine. Uh, or the molecular level of multiple desiring machines connecting together and doing stuff. Uh, the molar is the aggregate of massive numbers of these. So when we talk about society, uh, we are talking about the molar regime. When we're talking about, generally speaking, when we're talking about the subject or uh, the unconscious, we're talking about the molecular. It's a term they use that we will use quite a bit coming up here pretty quick. Is that close enough? Nah, I have to disagree because oh. you place the molecular and the unconscious in the subject. The molecular, the molar and the molecular are always in relation to the unconscious because it's two perspectives of the unconscious. Social production is the un, is an unconscious process um, in the same way that desiring production will be at the, mo- at the molecular level. Yeah, but and also they're not binary terms. We we tend no. to oppose them because we're stuck with this duality and this binary logic. But let's just say that the molar is a bundle of molecular lines. Let, let's let's put it like this. Yes, and it's uh, the the line they they use pretty consistently throughout stuff that it's uh, the one and the everything at once, the molar, which is wonderfully confusing. Um. Yeah, but, and 
to play on that, like I had this problem when I started too, with like the way they use these terms to take perspectives on these things, as opposed to like the separating of terms that I'm used to. So like when we started reading this and they were talking about the mega machine and the earth, I thought it was two different things. I didn't realize that it was the one and the same. So that is something difficult to get used to as you, you kind of approach this from, from the standpoint of usually a binary or a clear separation. Yeah, and I will say something, you know, that's because you're, uh, you've are you been trained in a school. You've been trained either in college or university. Uh, but that's the thing. We, we, are, we are being taught to think like this. And that's why it's interesting with Deleuze and Guattari when they said, oh, those books are made for like teenage between you know, the age of 15 and 20. So, and, and the more you you go into the academia, the more you go into this thought system of binaries and, you know, like cutting stuff and like classifying them, organizing everything, it's, it's, it's difficult to let go of this and go back into a more, you know, emerging uh, ontology. Like, but, but, but for, for younger people, it's, uh, this this text is less confusing than it is for somebody who's been uh, trained into a school. This is fair. Us old people have trouble with a lot of stuff. Um, another term uh, we can get through real quick is coding uh, as a thing. Jack, anyone want to take uh, that? Yeah, I, I can handle that. Um, or at least I can start it. I, I by no means need to have the final word. In fact, would prefer not to. Um, okay. So coding, okay, let's back up and talk about the socius, right? One of the main functions of the socius is to um, code flows of desire, right? In doing this, the socius establishes a kind of plane, um, if you like, but it, and, uh, not only is it a plane in the sense, it's also um, a machine, right? It produces things and one of its functions in that production um, especially in relation to the production of the how the three syntheses will take place, is to code the flows of desire that are going to go through that production. It's very important here, because um, what this means is that uh, there's a certain functionality that the codes of des uh, that the flows of desire will be given, right, as opposed to them being not coded. Uh, for Deleuze and Guattari, this is going to be kind of the primary fear of these first two societies. And it's going to establish the very limit that um, kind of helps constitute these soci, but also the very limit that makes it possible for them to be transgressed. Yeah, it's a, a reciprocal condition here. So when we're talking about coding, uh, what the socius is doing, right, at one level is it's providing a surface of inscription for the whole process of production, right? This means that you're going to have the forces and means of labor recorded on the socius. You're going to have the agents of uh, you're going to have the agents of production and those products distributed upon that surface. Right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, go ahead, Jack. Sorry. So what the socius is doing here is fashioning a collective memory. They use Nietzsche's idea of like uh, mnemotonics, the technology of memory, to do this. By coding the flows, the socius is effectively taking signifying chains and um, DU, I think it's the, the word they use is deducting, but basically taking a, uh, taking a sign out of that chain 
and using it to establish certain meanings for those flows, or, or rather certain functions that it will perform. It's not. We'll get into meaning. We'll get into all of this a little bit later. The, the last one is uh, territory and deterritorialization and reterritorialization. After this, I promise you, we're going to get right into the socius's and have that conversation. Um, territorialization is. Uh, kind of a simple concept. It comes from old anthro studies. Uh, when we talk about, they talked about uh, tribes uh, being deterritorialized, uh, you know, the separation of their culture from their land. Uh, Lacan began to use this term. Uh, don't worry, Misha, we'll get there. Uh, Lacan began to use this term ter uh, territorialization for infants. Uh, basically, how an infant began to learn areas on the body, uh, where where these things are, as he called them, erogenous zones, what areas are sensitive to touch. Uh, this allows the infant and makes the infant uh, privilege certain things over others when it comes to desire. Uh, this is territorialization. Uh, Deleuze and Gart, Guattari, take this another step where they start talking about de- and re-territorializations. Uh, so we need to think about uh, territorialization as the assigning of uh, desire, to areas and things and the privileging of certain spots over others. When we deterritorialize, we've removed that privilege. We've moved it around, but we also re-territorialize at the same time by assigning that privilege elsewhere. So uh, the nature of territorialization. Those are the big terms and it's important we get through those and all of them are not, I'm not super proud of all of these because this is, again, this is a really long, very difficult set but it's important when we talk about chapter three, because what we're going to talk about now is their universal history, as it is called. What they're doing here is they're, like I said, in chapter two, where they went through the history of psychoanalysis and humanity and how our unconscious works, and they started breaking it down. They basically began the same process with society. And they said, well, look, if we look at all of history in the light of capitalism, uh, and we look at the, how things are now as sort of the God's truth, the same way we used to talk about Oedipus being the God's truth of how the unconscious has always functioned. It puts us in a really bad place. Instead, what we need to do is we need to talk about history as it happened and how the relations of these new things we've begun talking about uh, interact, how they produce, and how all of them sort of create their own meaning and manage production. Uh, the first of these that they began talking about is what they call the primitive territorializing machine. Uh, they use the term primitive a ton. Uh, other times, I believe they use savage uh, as well. Uh, the, the, the meaning of it is pretty simple. Uh, think about it uh, pre-civilization, what we would call civilization today. This is the... Uh, the groups uh, wandering the plains, uh, the Indians, indigenous people uh, from all over the world, this kind of that kind of place, the primitive territorializing machine. Uh, how their society functions, we can't look at through the lens of capital, is what they're saying. We instead need to talk about how their uh, sort of uh, how everything happened, how things worked within their groups and in their societies that allowed them to maintain social cohesion. Yeah, and. Uh... So something to help, I think, you know, sometimes, you know, it's the same thing as when we talk about psychoanalysis about the uh, the cigar, sometimes a cigar is a cigar, sometimes a territory is a territory, you know, it's a, uh, it's how humans, or any other animals is relating to the natural world, to its natural setting, it's its form of unwealth, you know, how like the, the how the world is being experienced by a person or 
an, an organism. So a territory is this, is, is how, you know, all desires is being, uh, is flowing through all these connections of, you know, human beings with their, their territory. For example, you know, uh, uh, a group of human living, you know, in a plane. And uh, I don't know if it's a plane in English, like, uh, or, or, you know, a forest or anything. They have their own world. So this, this is, this is the first territory. And then, you know, they, we, it, I think it's easier to understand if we, you know, sometimes use this kind of uh, understanding and then we can move on to uh, more complicated stuff. So deterritorialization or re-territorialization means that it's a changing relation to the environment or a change within the environment. And it changes how desire is being coded, decoded, and uh, uh, it changes its flows. Yeah. That's dead on with the, the ecology of it, right? Just for the territoriality to be to to take place in relation to the socius upon its surface, right? We have those point signs and everything happening on that surface to constitute that territory, and in doing so, right, one of the things that's changing here is the functionalisms, as you're saying, the way production is going to be produced and the the, the connections and disconnections that are possible. And finally, the subjectivities that will result there. The whole um, the whole process shifts with that. And so when they go back, um, I'm going to say some very simplistic things and probably get yelled at again by everyone, which is great. Um, when they go back, one of the things that they're, they're wanting to have a conversation with and really talk about, especially with the primitive territorial machine, is how uh, the subject uh, manages and deals with uh, social machines where their desires are sort of administered, how their desires are sort of taught to them, and where prohibitions in this and anti-production because of that uh, enter into the entire setup. And of course they go straight to uh, Oedipus uh, as a concept because the way that the primitive territorial machine, uh, the primitive uh, sort of socius functions uh, is uh, one that uh, really plays around with uh, the filial, how do we want to phrase this, Jack? Well, let's, so there's some things we got to establish to get into that. Um, this universal history is a retrospective engagement with all of history and light of capitalism, as, as Brooks said. This is going to be a history of contingency as opposed to necessity and ruptures vis-a-vis -vis limits versus continuity. So it's not a linear progression. This is important because if you're wondering you know, why does it matter what happens in these societies? What Deleuze and Guadagni are doing here is they're looking at anthropology and looking at uh, societies that are being studied at this time, right? And they're trying to understand what's in these societies that is actually very much in our society. So with the primitive territorial machine we're talking about now, which for them is the earth, right? That's what they understand as the socius and the primitive um in the primitive um, society, I guess. <laughs> that is still very much present, although it's no longer in, in the same manner as we'll get into the progression. So to get to um, to what you're, you're getting at there, the debt relations that take place in relation to the earth, right? That's a condition for the filiative and the aligned uh, representation. Another way sort of to talk about that is that uh, kinship is what runs those societies. Uh, and this is, uh, as they talk about, 
Freud drew from this in order to sort of talk about sort of, uh, you know, Oedipalization and how people always have always been de de uh, demanded not to sleep with their mothers once upon a time it was necessary for survival. And they talk through this, that there is a, a natural kinship sort of exchanges value and that they go through this at length in some more complicated A, B, one, two, one marries two, two marries one math that I totally get lost in. But the idea is at this point, uh, we do generally speak, uh, deal with people through kinship relations, through affiliations and alliances, through the kinship sort of setup. Uh, who marries who? How do people get married? Who's related to who? Matters extremely importantly uh, to these societies. And uh, during this, uh, as they talk about, of course, uh, people were, you know, discouraged from sleeping with their own kin. It was really sort of not set up. So everything at this point is filiative. It's kinship based. The challenge is that uh, we can't really think of it in the same way because due to our sort of atomized nature today, when we talk about filiative, we tend to talk about what we call the nuclear family. We talk about our direct lineage. So it's my mom, it's my dad, that's set up. In primitive societies, that's not the case. There is an intricate weaving of kinship and families that are all sort of together and they have this massive extended filiation which is very different. So at this point in uh, the savage, uh, the primitive, uh, the first socius, whatever you want to call it, uh, the thing that they're trying to sort of eke out from the surface is that uh, you're not limited by your family, although everything is done for your family because kinship is interwoven into the socius itself because the society at large depends on it. You're not separated from society through your family. We'll get into that at some point. So the difference here is, well, you you have the prohibition generally about sleeping with your kin. Don't not, don't go fuck your mom. It doesn't end there. In fact, it's the opposite. It it goes elsewhere. They're like, you can't have sex with your mom. Go find other people to have sex with, and it it drives you in a sort of different setup and a different type of repression where your social goals is not about shame or uh, you know repression or. Uh, what is the term that they use for it, uh, Jack? Uh, the, how the taboo functions? It is uh, the prohibition. Prohibition. Uh, but instead, the prohibition is actually about your social goals as well. That there's a bigger reason that you don't sleep with your mom. Uh, with, Oedip with Oedipus, Oedipus is just literally about just the demand not to do it. Uh, it doesn't have the connection to your social goals and desires. So I, w I want to chime in there for a bit because... So first, I'm not sure I've understood everything you just said, but um, I think we should focus on the point that they make very early in the third chapter um, about how there was no incest or there is no incest in the primitive system at some point. Um, and I think here the relationship to Levi-Strauss is maybe important again because in Levi-Strauss the the um, incest taboo is what sets the sets this the, ex, and the, um, the exchange in motion right like the incest taboo is more or less um, what regulates that children have to marry outside their own family that's kind of what uh, what that is about and um they replace 
that principle of setting um, the, the structure in motion, um, the exchange in motion um, with some, I think that relates to what we talked about earlier with that, but I haven't really figured out what exactly they are doing there. So I, I agree with you. I think you're correct about that. For Deleuze and Guattari, incest is created um, by the socius as a as a as a representation of non-coded flows of desire. Try saying that five times fast. Um, so you're absolutely right because with the uh, with the affiliative and the alliant becoming um, right. So what you're talking about is how people begin in a non-signifying sense which is the kind of linguistic move they're making. Uh, well, it's the kind of linguistic move. Maybe you could talk about that too, but that's absolutely correct. There, people don't begin this way. There's a process of codification that, and territorialization that leads to it, which is going to be the affiliative and the alliant. Um, so in this sense, like Roger was saying, right, there's Steve and, and Julie and the, the, I don't know, and uh, and Roger the kid. <laughs> And that's not necessarily a mother-father-son relationship, but codification and a territorialization make that possible. In making that possible, that's conditioned by the affiliative and the alliant. So to, to promulgate debt, right, in this manner, the socius uses a memory of the affiliative, right, so of, of declension, uh, that is to say, like the family tree, and it's going to, um, although it's not the primary way debt is promulgated, the, um, it's going to serve as a kind of recording uh, of that, right, as a, a sort of like um, collective memory. This is going to be expressed and actually augmented by the alliant, right, through lateral alliances, through the um, political and economic engagement in society particularly through um, the exchange of women. One promulgates their declension, but more fundamentally, one is doing things in the society that promulgate debt, right? So this is important because incest is going to be created as a prohibition and a way of setting a limit in relation to the non-coded flows, the flows of desire that the socius cannot deal with which are going to be those that threaten the affiliative and the alliance structure. Uh, so obviously incest in this sense, it's not actually what people want to do. It's a representation of what people want to do. And it's a, rather, it's a representation of those desires that can't be coded. And in this way, allows a codification to kind of take place um, in lieu of that, right? Due to the inability to do so. That's how I read it too. So it's uh, to say a different way. Um, uh, in if I were to say uh, not to burn down your house, I don't really have to tell you that uh, you you understand socially and personally why it's in your best interest not to do such a thing. Uh, they're saying that uh, the first so with the first socius especially, there was uh, no need to say such a thing uh, the, with incest because it is just naturally in everyone's best interest not to have these things sort of happen. That was don't my, they, to put it really cleanly, that's how I understood what they're talking about here. Don't they also talk about 
uh, it's hard to find in the physical copy of this specific like section. I don't even remember if it's in like 3.4, but um, like by entering into that kind of like relationship with somebody that we would view as like incestuous nowadays or like biologically incestuous that it like changes the position of like both you and them in the culture. So it's either like you've already like you either have not committed incest or you're already like beyond incest to where like symbolically the mother or sister has like changed positions to like the lover or whatever. So yes. And that's basically just a radicalization of Levi-Strauss because in Levi-Strauss as well, like incest is a completely cultural category and the positions in the family are completely contingent. And that's shown by Levi-Strauss in relation to certain practices where um, there are very complicated rules on when a certain kind of cousin um, is available for marriage and when it would be incest and stuff like that. Um, and they are just radicalizing that to the point where they say that there are configurations in which incest simply does not exist. In, in, yes, because... So we're talking about the codification and the territoriality that makes that all possible in relation to coded flows, right? So non-coded flows are going to be represented as incest, right? But that incest, like Lou's saying, is contextual and relative to a society. It's not the incest we know through Oedipus. It's an incest of, um, it's not even just the mother, actually. It's the woman who can function as a mother or the woman who can function as a sister, the former in the case of the son, the latter in the case of the brother, because this would be something that doesn't allow for a lateral alliance. That is to say, something horizontally promulgating and thereby also something that is vertically extensive, extended affiliation. So this gets represented as incest. Well, the representation we have uh, today, let's say I have, because I have a nuclear family. It's all I've ever known. It's my understanding of how society functions. It's my definition of family as it is. Uh, my definition of incest that I have uh, almost uh, wholly doesn't apply if we look back because they have, as through their affiliations and alliances, incredibly complex family structures that are not simply the nuclear mommy, daddy, me family, but instead complicated ins and outs of cross cousins, parallel cousins, aunts, uncles, everyone who's sort of involved in that process. And the relations are different because of that. Yeah. Yes. And it, if, if I want to go back to like Levi-Strauss and to, because it's a, it's an understanding of, you know, endogamous and exogamous relationships too, you know, when it pertains to the social group, but to society at large, or, you know, potential, potential alliance between groups. Um, Levi-Strauss says something like, the category of possible spouses in a system of preferential marriage is never closed. For what is not prohibited is permitted through sometimes only in a certain order and to a certain extent. Moreover, this preference is explained by the mechanism of exchange proper to the system considered and not by the privileged nature of a group or class. So you have this 
specific, you know, understanding under Levi Strauss. And it, Levi Strauss would say, like, in, in certain societies, uh, endogamous marriage is. Uh, uh, is 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 practiced by a certain group. For example, the monarchy. You know, they will do endogamous uh, marriage and reproduction, and you can see how monstrous it can become. You know, we have historical traces of like how ugly those people were becoming. Um, but in in into royalty, uh, that was the norm. So the the incest falls or becomes the norm for this this specific group in society where where it is not something that is entertained by the rest of the groups. Yeah, that's right. It's got to be contextualized and it's got to fit in relation to associus, the non-coded flows of desire, right, which is what's effectively being repressed in a sense. Um, and so 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 just to add to this, you know, because it serves a function. The function within royalty is to keep the wealth, but also keep this, you know, like idea of divinity that runs through the family. So they don't want to distribute this. But in, you know, in, a, in an economy of exchange or debt, you know, you kind of need to give yourself away to the other social groups to pertain as like a certain consistency that is not linked to a direct kinship uh, of wealth or divinity passing from, you know, the gods to humans. Right. And so to your point about the functionalism and that divinity, because that's the biofiliative memory that's repressed. So right with the socius creating a collective memory, there's the biofiliative that's enabled, but it's like uh, they use Nietzsche to talk about how a new memory is created and being inscribed and represses that biofiliative memory, which is that of the aligned, right? And to your point, that's very much, uh, the biofiliative is very much in relation to like divinity and that, which the earth kind of acts as a con sort of a connection to, I guess. Um, and this is very important here because to your point about functionalism, the socius in create in, in right, in, enabling the production of production and as acting as this reporting surface and this um, surface for the territories. This is all in, um, in effect producing the surplus value of code that the socius will um, appropriate for itself, right? So this is very important because for incest to threaten that, or rather for what incest represents to threaten that creation of surplus value of code, that is what has to be um, repressed in a sense. And that's what's going to get into and it may actually become a condition for the following, which we'll get to, as we always say on this show, for the, the sociuses to come. Yeah. And, you know, we can, we can give like just an example of Levi-Strauss also. Um, I'm sorry if I, I'm taking it like deeper, but um when did he talks about endogamy and exogamy and he says in the neighboring example of the apinae indians these are divided into four exogamous groups or kiye united by a system of preferential marriage so that a man of a you know, talking of groups marries a, a woman of b a man of b marries a woman of c a woman a man of c marries a woman of d and the d marries a woman uh, a man of D marries a woman of A. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a simple uh, system of generalized exchanges. So basically, by by going through these rules, 
uh, society keeps exchanging members and it's going around and it keeps the cohesion. But that's that's one specific group and one specific society. In other society, it happens in two different manners. But that's that's the whole thinking of Levi Strauss to say like, you know, we're trying to find a structure that uh, is 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 giving um, you know uh, weight to those real or material uh, exchanges. But Deleuze and Guattari will go on the reverse and say, you know, it's the it's the real understanding that actually like. Um, gives way to this, this structure. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly spot on. Because that, so right again, why does this matter? Because this system, especially the construction of debt, is going to play into the following soci. And it's going to, right, if we take seriously the project of constructing a fourth socius, this is something we've got to deal with, right? This is something that's going to come with us um, and that remains present in in history, right? Because we're talking about something that is still very much here in 2021. And that if we get to the socius tomorrow, it's going to be there tomorrow. I hate this chapter. That's all that's all I'm adding. I'll mute myself again. <laughs> so I think right. I think I think we moved a lot, you know, we're go we went into this, but you know, wasn't the main question about territory and deterritorialization. So it's it's to me, uh, the the question, well, I mean, there's a million questions and this is where it's like, what's the point of talking through this? Let's just start there. What's the point? So the point is they're establishing a few things, right? They're going to establish the debt relationships that are going to not only constitute this form of economy, but will follow us into the imperialist and into capitalism and very much into the whatever the fourth socius might become. The point is also to understand this affiliative and alliant aspect because this gets played on throughout the development, right? Um, the creation of the prohibition, right? Uh, that construction of a representation to displace um, or rather to establish the limit in relation to non-coded flows, right? That which would threaten the very, um, the very structure that we're talking about, the affiliative and the, the alliant. And finally, the creation of surplus value that this socius enables through this construction. I think, is it, is it possible to maybe restate the, let's say the beginning of this session to just, because I, I, I feel like I'm a bit lost um, still, to restate what they're responding to. And I think Brooks put it quite well about the, Freud created his understanding of how the unconscious functioned based on social norms of the bougie around him at the time. Yeah. So, like, and then, I, yeah. Real quick, it's uh, just so I can repeat what I typed because it's. I think it's the summation of what they're doing here. Uh, chapter two was essentially them saying, uh, the people who came before us, uh, Lacan, especially Freud, but others, uh, all predicated their beliefs on the unconscious based on how humanity as they knew it worked but they were looking at it through an already edipalized capitalist, uh, capital socialist lens that influenced uh, their desiring machines and their syntheses and gave them some, let's, we'll say, bad information. And instead, what we need to do is we need to completely take apart and break apart how a society functions and find out how desiring machines connect to social machines and how those things are then working within the socius to determine how a society works. We can't just assume that we understand it because 
the relations and systems of relations and power relations are so drastically different that it's impossible. So they start breaking shit down. They start with the primitive. The first thing they do is they go, wait, this is a place where there's not hierarchical power as we know it. There's also not an economy as we know it. And we need to discuss what an economy is and how it works. Just like with Lacan and Freud, things don't come from a lack. They don't have this. There's no overall lack in society. Desire is not something that's naturally exchangist. Instead, they go, well, here's, here is our, our friend Levi Strauss through this other guy. And we need to talk about kind of the excess of society that comes, uh, that they see sort of through Bataille as well, and how society is this different way of thinking about things and how flows move through all of this. Wait, wait, wait. Society is excess? Sorry, I, I, didn't, get, I didn't get that sentence. I, I thought you just said that that society is formed through excess. Is that what you said? Is that, it, is that a, it, society, production is organized for the sake of excess. With the goal of excess. That's correct. Uh, it's what Strauss says. I, that's how that's how I read it. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jack. The production of surplus value is what the socius and the body of the organs will do in relation to the production of production. Yeah. Um, but desire doesn't really have goals in that sense, yeah. So um, I didn't say desire. I said society uh, organizes it for excess. Yes, but there's also a distribution of deficiency. And so wait, wait. This is Strauss or this is Deleuze? That's Bataille. Ah! <laughs> no, this is welcome to the really the, the worst chapter in the book for this. It's a whole thing. But so the excess is going to be okay. So let's start here. Where they're talking about excess and deficiency, that's like the creditor debtor aspect. That enables the surplus value of code, which is the I don't want to call an excess here, but that that's the thing that um we're after here is that's the creation of the surplus value. Yes, the excess and the social management of excess as debt is the primary sort of reason of the system. The, the socius. So are you talking about like how a hunter isn't allowed to just like enjoy his own kill? He's got to bring it back to the tribe for it to be like skinned and cleaned and cooked and distributed among the tribe. And he can't just like revel in all of the surplus value of his own elk. Yes, it's it's and it's I wouldn't even say necessarily that he can't because that would that implies, as we know it, the prohibitions as they exist within capital. It would be absurd for a hunter back then to do such a thing because of the severe social pressures and how they operated. The, the nature of social pressures then was not just, hey, if I can get away from it, away with it, I get a few extra dollars, which is kind of how things operate for people now. But instead, just a hard, you don't do this because you are, and your desiring machines, they would say, your desiring machines and social machines are so directly connected. They are in, I don't want to say in sync, but that the repression of society is very connected within you. And you're so connected to this, it would be absurd for you to think you could do that. Just like incest didn't happen because back then you didn't see desire in the same ways. Uh, you didn't like sit there and go, uh, uh, oh, I, boy, I wish I could fuck my mom, but I can't. That's not how it worked either. You'd you, the, the desiring machines were directly connected to social machines. They didn't suffer in the same way that they do now under our form of representation is how I understand it. And I know I shouldn't talk about the primitive in the past tense. Sorry, I do that because it's the easier explanations, Lou. Sorry. 
So, I'm just going to say like one little thing to make stuff uh, clearer. Um, you know, there's each society has its own political economy. So, you know, what they're trying to show is that what we're doing right now with, with the, the, the psychoanalytic Oedipal thing is not natural. It's something that is cultural, it's something that is contextual, but something that is really linked to a moment within capitalism. By going back into primitive societies, because they call them, you know, anthropology called them the primitives back then. We don't do this now within the discipline, but we used to, um, is to to actually try to see ourselves through the other. So to, you know, the example of uh, killing this elk and like bringing it back to uh, the community, it's because it's linked to all political economy of, you know, of togetherness and survival and, you know, how society is functioning. So right now it's, you know, you go, you get under the salariat uh, or I don't know if it's the term in English, but uh, you go, you work, you get your, your paycheck and you go just fucking do whatever you want with it, you know, because it's linked to a more individualist kind of understanding. So this, their whole task is to show that there's differences and differentiation happen in different manners. And it's it's by stating this about other people or other times is to allow us to look at ourselves and say, oh, what we're doing is pretty relative. We could do otherwise. Yeah, I think that the the hunter with the elk is a good example of it's an, an easy way to see the um the socius as an organism appropriating the uh what is produced by a given organ which is the hunter in this case um and i think that it's uh they call the hunter who returns the elk to the tribe perverse and i think that this is connected to their general characterization of re-territorialization as a kind of perversity because it's um something that they rather than just uh, like a desiring machine itself, um, I don't know, producing its own surplus value. It, like, it's kind of beside the point to take, to, you know, kill an animal and then take it back to the tribe, which is, I think, kind of the, the nature of the appropriation by the organism. Well, no, that, that is, um, okay, so it is to the point, right? To kill the animal and then consume it, right? is to risk punishment in the theater of cruelty because in doing so there's this uh, to the point about political economy there's a threat to this um to the system of debt that has now been introduced right so this is how i mean we can yeah, but also but also although yeah also there's a different ontology in, in in those societies you know the animal is just not an object or a commodity like we see it now you know it's it's <laughs> it's a being with a soul and it might just be your grandfather as well you know so like there's there's a whole different relationship and i think that you know jack you're getting into the the you know the moral economy as well uh, because you're linked to the cosmos, you know, there's there's like an intimate link with like the thing of the natural world. So uh, there's a more holistic kind of understanding that what we have now with, you know, the commodification of everything. And, and the nature of all socius, as they put it, uh, is specifically about codifying flows of desire, inscribing them, recording them, and then ensuring 
that all of them essentially get dammed up, regulated, and channeled. That is the job of associates. That's what it does. It's how it functions. And so, so, with- so this, you know, if we take this into account and we reverse it and we problematize ourselves. So, for example, I work and I give all my money away. You know, I work and all the fruit of my labor, I distribute it to everybody because I see community. People will think I'm insane because I don't do it in the way that the social, the socials captures and codifies the relationship that I should have with others. Just what the social says is like, get you, get your money and, you know, blow it up on Coke. You know, <laughs> that's what the socialist kind of says. But uh, if you do it on the reverse, you're being uh, a former, you know, perverted individual. Even if you're trying to go to do the, the good moral thing, you know? Yeah, that's right. Because to do that is enabled by the socius, right? You're not getting into a non-coded flow of desire per se. But to that point too, um, oh, I had something, but I lost it. Oh, sorry. Can you say what you said one more time, buddy? Uh, the socius codifies and captures relationship into a specific manner. For example, production will be captured differently into one society than in another. In this specific society where individualism thrives, uh, you don't go and blow your money on others. You you blow your money on your own blow. <laughs> if I could make a joke with this, but that's that's the thing. You would be considered as you know somebody who's deranged, somebody who has a problem if you just give all your money away and instead of keeping it for yourself. But into another society, you do this, you're going to be ostracized. I still can't remember what I was going to say, but I agree with you. Um, only to add that with the individualism, right? It's a curious form of individualism that relies on a collective in the first place, right? So even with um, the hunter, which doesn't have the same individualism that we know today, but with that, right, there's a connection with um, the hunted, right, the animals, all of this taking place in the body of the earth. In the same way, when you blow your money on coke, (laughs) right, there's a whole series of things happening in order to get that cocaine in the first place, right? You've got to go to a dealer. You've got to arrange certain social settings. Um, that guy's got to get it from somewhere, right? So this is all enabled by the socius. Yes, exactly. And that's why, you know, in my, my, my opening sentence at the beginning, I said, it's really important to always keep in mind the social technical assemblage that allows relationship to happen. So... In a society, there's a specific social technical arrangement that is there. But in ours, you know, there's a whole system of capitalism, capitalist exchange that is always going. But there's also the state through taxation and redistribution of wealth that is working. So this is the underlying strata on which you function. So you're allowed to have this freedom, this individual freedom. Because collectivism is being, you know, externalized within the state, if I can say it like that, you know, and that's in line with Le Roi Gourin thesis about, you know, externalization through technology and the state is a technology. Yeah. And they make it very clear that this is a social machine and a technical machine has the capacity to do both, but it cannot be taken as exclusively one or the other, ironically. So maybe the, the, the crux for me for also f- uh, framing this, because I'm still on that mission while listening to uh, what 
all you guys are saying is uh, from a question asked way earlier in the chat or actually was a remark about their um, interpretation of historical movement as not uh, moving from savage to despot to capital uh, in some sort of linear way, but rather they have a different kind of relationships to each other. And maybe I'm just, could you guys elaborate on what that relationship then exactly entails if it's not something linear, like uh, maybe traditionally thought? Yes. Um, so it, it's not a linear history, right? It's not, it's not a continuous march forward. They're accessing history through what they joke is the, the end of history, right? Which I believe is a play on Hegel. But in this sense, universal history for Deleuze and Watery is a retrospective engagement with all of history in light of capitalism. And I can give you a page. This is page pages 139 to 140. So they lay out the terms of this engagement, right? What their criteria is for doing this. There's also one page 40. So universal history for them is a history of contingency as opposed to necessity. So this means that things don't necessarily have to proceed the way they have any more than we necessarily have to engage them the way we are um, in this retrospective lens. There are contingencies that make all this possible, and there are contingencies that make the way we're going to read history possible, always accessing it from the present as opposed to escaping the present into the past. They further, um, they further say that universal history is one of ruptures vis-a-vis -vis limits as opposed to continuity. So um, actually Varun asked me to read this, and I probably should have earlier, but with this point too, their chronology is the actualization of what had hitherto been virtual. So time is no longer a matter of secession, but rather a matter of coexistence. So because we're accessing this through the present, right? These three soci, particularly the primitive, that's not gone, right? That it hasn't disappeared. That's something that coexists with, um, with capital and capitalism. Uh, to that point, this is why it matters too that we have ruptures and limits as opposed to continuity. We don't have that march forward in history. We don't have the necessity of progress or some end goal. We have ruptures, right? We have ways that breaks um, and flows just kind of um, erupt in a certain sense, especially with breakthroughs or even breakdowns for that matter. And we have his, uh, limits within these societies and our historical engagement one of which is going to be um, uncoded flows. So this retrospection serves to deal with capitalism's limits, the potential for its destruction, and the source of its self-criticism, which is the ironic engagement they have with history. So, so if we, if I can, you know, probably give you some 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 ins to what you're going to say, um, it, it, they're they're taking those three categories, but it's they're mostly stratas, you know, in in the sense that uh, they're they're modalities of arrangement for uh, specific societies. But you know, like in history, you know, it's it's society works by differentiation or complexification. So the primitive societies, or you know, the despotic ones, are still with us today. We emerge from that, so it's a constant emergence of you know all those relationships that was already there because we depend on those primordial relationships. 
but also uh, you know those primordial relationships uh, add in their virtuality the possibility of where we are now. I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know if I go too far into other uh, the the other writings of Deleuze and Guattari, but it's it's uh, it's it's in their ontology. Everything is already there. You know, like it's the vir- everything is within the virtual and is being actualized. But the more the actualization differentiates and complexifies itself, the more it can actualize um, what is being contained into the virtual. So. Maybe my I have a different question that that does relate to this in my head, but but please uh, say it to me if if it doesn't relate to you, as in maybe I'm not making sense to you. So um, when they when they criticize Freud for let's say taking the symptom, so how people acted around him, and using it as a justification to then say how the unconscious works for everyone or how the unconscious in itself works they critique that by basically saying and correct me if i'm wrong you can't just take those conclusions from the 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 symptomatic analysis analysis that you did because um the only thing you're describing is the specific system that you were in not all possibilities of the unconscious is is that is that correct that's a part of it that's a part yeah. of it, right? There's a, but there's so a, then, a di- oh yeah, okay, yeah. go ahead. So then my question eventually becomes, how do they then justify their own findings? Like, I just don't, what, what are they looking at then if they're not just looking at the people around them <laughs> and then making their, let's say, uh, metaphysical conclusions? Uh, it's in the title of the book, you know. <laughs> it's a it's capitalism and schizophrenia. But that's that's the thing. Instead of like you know, uh, they're they're saying it from like uh, from within capitalism. Capitalism, you know, gives the possibility of actualization of all those virtuals, and it's you know instead of pathologizing the individual, they put it into a collective manner. That's correct. The other, the big thing is too. By creating this universal history and everything, right? They're explaining, they're giving an explanative power that something like the the idea of Oedipus at this time simply doesn't have, right? And it shows differentiation in doing so, right? Because um, if we take Oedipus as a universal structure that's always been with us things start to look kind of cloudy when we start finding examples of societies that don't have that or in the chapter on ethnography where they talk about not ha- those societies not having Oedipus until they're imperialized as such. Um, so one of the big moves they're making here is they're criticizing interpretation through which a medium of thought or a kind of framework um, provides the deduction of meaning. So when you overlay a kind of structure onto things, right? Um, and you, it's sort of like try to make things fit in that, right? There's a huge problem with your engagement because you're basically creating a representation of what you're engaging and interpreting. They're going to say that this is a problem of, uh, well, they're going to call it a problem of meaning, right? This is asking what things are. Their juxtaposition, their differentiation method is to take on functionalism here and say, what do things do, right? 
So what does Oedipus do as opposed to what it is? How does Oedipus function as opposed to what does Oedipus mean? Where does Oedipus come from? Right? What's the genesis? How does it happen? What creates it? What, what are the conditions for it to even happen, which this universal history will provide us, as opposed to saying it's just universally present, right? We don't know where it came from. Um, we can't really account for its creation or construction, but we believe it transcends all that, right? But so, just as a, this is more of a trivia question, but do they then actually believe there is such, like, <clears throat> I'm just, I'm also in the headspace of Mark Fisher. So do they actually believe in um, an alternative way? And can, do they, do they, can they imagine that? I've not read Mark Fisher, but this book ends with them discussing the creation of a fourth socius, right? A new socius, a new um, source of collective memory in that, something that will start, uh, that will create a surplus value of production, right? But will also be uh, directly engaged with the production of production, how that falls back on it. So they are well, thinking about a new... Yeah, a new, so that, I, we, will, we will get to that. It's, it's a thing that happens... Uh, they don't explicitly outline anything here, but it is, uh, I would not say that they agree with Fisher's conclusion that it's impossible to see beyond capital. Their argument would be because we're looking at power structures through capital. Um, so it's, I mean, and Fisher agrees with that. That's capitalist realism. Looking at capital through capital makes it very difficult to see what's next. Um, well, and you and, don't uh, have to see beyond and, it, right? You have to work with what's present. Go ahead, Roger. Yeah, and that's the thing, you know, because when you're looking to do politics with Deleuze and Guattari, it's kind of difficult because uh, normally when you want to do this, it's because you come from a Marxist or post-Marxist or, you know, an anarchist background, and you're looking for the same kind of normative claims and, you know, the, the prescriptions, and they don't have stuff cleared up. You know, there's um, some ins, you know, they say, oh, you know, we need to deteriorize or, you know, sometimes they will say we need to accelerate, at, but they don't really go further. And they say, oh, you know, we need to uh, the favor into the nomadic thought to get out of, you know, the sedentarity kind of mind frame we're in to redo our relationships and alliances, blah, 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 and all that. But like, what can we do with this uh, in the concrete world? That's a, that's a little tougher question. And a lot well, of and, and I think we are jumping a bit ahead because we haven't yeah. even gotten to the despotic or capitalist representation, which is really important to be able to have this discussion meaningfully. Totally. And then, you know, we, we will come to that. But what I'm saying is that other people have taken over this task. Uh, for example, Negrian art into multitude and empire. They tried to take the the framework of Deleuze and Guattari and put it in a more Marxist kind of, this kind of understanding of politics. And I think, you know, Mark Fisher probably took some part of it and a lot of new authors are turning towards Deleuze and Guattari to uh, ma make their thinking more political. So I risk, I risk my case on this one. <laughs> can, can we, um, because I'm also really curious about the despotic, but I just have one more question also that came up earlier that I had written down. Um, could you define, or, 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 or not define, but let's say lay out how anti-production functions again? That's sort of out of, out of left field. 
Yeah, 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 sorry, but it's just be you, you, because I think you brought it up because you you talked about the fourth socius, and that's also kind of a response to enter production, isn't it? Uh, I mean, when we talk about production, we're talking about anti-production um, in relation to production, right? They're, you know, they're, they're, they're codependent, right? They exist in relation to one another. Okay, maybe maybe I'll I'll save it for another uh, for another day because maybe it's a big question that I also need to read up on myself. But um, I'm I'm really curious about the the the, the dysphalic, um thing as well because I think that we haven't gotten to that indeed. No, it's 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 worth a very quick answer, and I'm going to give a Brooks quick one that I know someone here is going to be very upset with me. Um, Production and anti-production don't exist in the same way. We can't think of anti-production as like the opposite of production. Instead, think of it like matter and antimatter. They are sort of two and the same uh, that uh, there will say, let's say a healthy world has a balance uh, between them. And as they talk about kind of, we need to talk about the neurotic and the pervert, uh, the, the ultimately the healthy thing would be that we have a balance of anti-production. We don't connect with everything and do everything. Um, which would be pure production, but we also don't only have anti-production where we basically deny ourselves everything in an ascetic lifestyle. Uh, and that anti-production is the disconnection, production is the connection. Very, very short version of that. Yeah. Uh, and if, if we think about machines connecting, desiring machines, float that to society. Production and anti-production exist on a societal level. A machine makes stuff or it doesn't. Anti-production is the thing where it doesn't. Uh, and we want to also our society keep those things balanced and think about that. The difficulty with anti-production is that because it's the matter of not connecting, it's a really easy way for us to sort of fuck up desire uh, because desire's going and it produces shit. But if anti-production's sitting there blocking it uh, because of, you know, some, you know, poor use of the syntheses or some paralogism, uh, that causes problems and it starts to force other desire to get captured uh, through a lot of different uh, units. So it's uh, it's the second. It's the yeah. It's the or uh, correct. It's the or instead of the and is what anti-production does, because uh, the example they give and the example uh, a lot of people use is that animals, when they have desire, will go and do a thing forever. If uh, you've ever had a starving dog uh, and you give it like a giant bowl of food, it'll eat itself until it's distended and you have to take it to the vet. Uh, I had a rescue that did that once. It's horrifying. Um, the the nature of animals is that they will focus and do a thing forever. Uh, we we can separate from that. Is there is there sort of version of that that we can yeah. uh, not have that happen? Thanks to the BWO and anti-production, which is a good thing. Anti-production is not a bad thing. It's not anti like anti-Christ. It's anti-production, like anti-matter. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, when we bring it back to capitalism and to the human world, you know, we are being taught to do uh, the same thing forever, you know, to actualize our desire within the limits of capital. So anti-production is the blockage of differentiation in the sense that, you know, it blocks other instances of desire that would fall outside of capitalism. So basically anti-production keeps you within this little frame and where production is happening. So, you know, that's a really simple way of understanding it. It, it makes you get into a refrain, you know, your habits, you know, your, your existence and, you know, started from day to day, going to work, going back home and your desire is articulated in that manner. You know, if you desired, if you decide to become a bank robber, 
you know, anti-production is not working for you anymore. <laughs> well, and again, so this is the first socius, as they talk about, uh, exists in a place where anti-production and production are created at the societal level, but our desire and our flows are sort of codified in, in conjunction with those. And it's, I'm not going to say properly, it's the wrong term, but the, the things we need at a societal level kind of flow naturally and work within uh, what we need on a personal level, our desires and how those things work. Over time, the switch to the despotic is a big change for a few reasons. One of the big ones is the representation that happens in that. Because again, a representation in the despotic is, as Jack was talking about earlier, is the earth. It's God. Is is uh, It's not written. It's, it's us talking through ideas and words. I'm talking with Misha. I'm talking with Jack. The way representation works is quite different. With the despotic, it introduced a really, really fun thing the written word, which is kind of a terrifying thing, the way that they break it down. At least it was for me, where it's like uh, the, 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 the nature of the written word, uh, uh, imperial inscription, I think is the phrasing that they use. Uh, the, the, the change happens with the despotic in a lot of ways. First, no longer is it the earth or the skin or these things on which debt is incurred, but instead uh, that there's now inscription and writing. And that actually changes the voice so suddenly, actually, uh, the the voice is not lo no longer Brooks or whatever, but instead, the words themselves become signifiers, and they are almost spoken from a position of God of everything instead of of Misha or of Brooks. It is spoken from the despot, from the God, from everything, and so because of this, and they go through a lot of uh, explanations about like sort of the the implications here, but. Uh, this is a huge deal. And the other part of this is that the despot also begins to organize and sort of control, let's say, things I'm not directly involved with. This is a very clumsy way of talking about it, but uh, the primitive socialist perhaps would be a village. And I kind of would know everyone. I'd probably be related to a lot of people uh, in a lot of ways, not like a nuclear family. I'm part of the village. It's a large, large collection. And under the despot, our village would be one of many that are part of now our society or the larger despotic socius. The despotic socius then starts actually having a 40,000 foot view of all this and begins, uh, as they say in the Asiatic, uh, I promised I wouldn't use the word, God damn it, um, begins assigning tasks to different uh, villages. So now the things my village is doing isn't necessarily stuff I'm directly connected to or able to see. Instead, it's representations that I begin dealing with, orders from on high, uh, specifically the written the written word and the inscription. Uh, this, this shift changes the power dynamics. Instead of my desiring machines now directly connecting and the anti-production that's produced be something I can deal with, now we have inscriptions telling me what I actually need and want. And that's terrifying to a psyche because I don't see that. I don't know that. I don't have any of that. My desiring machines aren't matched with the despots across the board. So when the despot turns and says, oh yes, a wall needs to be constructed here. You need to go to war. We need a dam. We need you to farm. I don't really get it. And so, but because it's written and because it's inscribed in this way, the gaze has changed. The story has changed. And suddenly now I'm actually wanting these things. And uh, this is where the sort of anti-production starts getting fucked up because now I'm being told what I want. Now I've got paralogisms across the board that are completely you know, messing up my actual desires and having society at large now shape me. The anti-production is now being produced inside of me in a different direction. And yes, this is- and now, 
and I will quote the Magnificent Spice Girl on it saying, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. But that's not an individual thing. It's the collective, you know, reaching through the individual. But that's the state of our society, you know, where there's a confusion between, you know, the individual desire and the pre-individual condition in which they arise and they're being produced in the body. Um, is, is this oh sorry real quick in all three of these societies you don't control what you desire right you are produced during desire um as such right this is all pre um like pre-individual that yes complete the subject is variable in this and it's not a matter of uh yeah no one has the idea of freedom or whatever that word is, it's not really how they're talking about it. It's about how we produce desires within these things and how desire is sort of created as part of the socius uh, through the entire thing. So it's not freedom like it is for Sartre, right? Where Sartre will Correct. say you can be free in your mind, right? We can talk about this later on, but it's not going to look like that here because the unconscious is the productive, not you or I. So that tends to be where the despotic is. Now, the despotic is fascinating in a lot of ways. Uh, but again, this is uh, there is no economy here in the in the way that we sort of have developed it because uh, things are still done very sort of hand to mouth, direct, direct, direct. Uh, uh, it's not at the same type of exchange system that we talk about now. It's not the same setup that things are very different under the despot. And at this point, as they say, Oedipus still hasn't shown up. Like, that's their continual refrain, I think, throughout this entire uh, chapter is like, oh, no, not yet, not yet. Oedipus is coming, but nope, nope, still not yet. Uh, even though uh, it's, you know, there's a general don't do not do this thing, the despot's totally allowed and generally actually encouraged to commit great acts of incest, uh, to reproduce, uh, get that Habsburg jaw going. Uh, so <laughs> It's a very different thing. The Oedipal incest is different. Incest has its own category still during this. And the the way that desire is produced now is from the despot, from this written word, creating paralogisms and fucking with you. And because of that, your desires get shifted and changed uh, through, through the entire process prior to your subjectivity arising, which again becomes this sort of larger, oh, then that's part of the social machines. This then creates its own anti-production and the process repeats itself. Okay, but we've got to back up here because we like we skipped the entire emergence of the despot, right? Oh yeah, um, no, totally. We and, skipped all of that shit. And to that point, the despotic, the, the despot themselves, yes, there is the despot's body in that, but we have to be very careful here because we don't want to act as though the despotic, any more than fascism, is reducible to a single person telling us what to do, right? This is this is a collectivity in this sense. There is a collective despotism, um, and it's very important because although we will have the despot's body, Rome is not Rome doesn't need Caesar. As if you've read Shakespeare, you know what I'm talking about, right? Caesar is expendable for because the 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 body of the despot in that sense isn't isn't exactly Caesar's body, right? It's something that Caesar's body functions as but it's a function that other bodies can perform too and in fact if, if you know right other bodies will do that yes. because what yes. the the direct um i'll turn it over Is to you this... in just a second there roger um 
because what happens with the, the, the despotic to start this direct conversation is that a new lineage or rather a direct filiation will be established through the despot that allows for that kind of, um, that kind of change to take place. Mm -hmm. So the despot is already the result of a rearrangement of the techno-social apparatus. You know, I, I use apparatus. It's 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 wrong into the way that uh, the Lusin Quatero are talking. But you know, it's it's already a change, but it allows change. You know, it it's a strata that uh, is resulting from previous differentiation, but allows new differentiation. So, and and the the body of the despot is you know, as you said, it's a it's not um, important into this individualized body, but in this individualized body can occupy this place because the function came before this body. I, it's like, for example, let's keep something really easy. Trump. Trump happened because America wanted it. And that's the thing. It could have been anybody else. But it happened the way it happened because America was turning to a form of populism already. And, you know, Trump was just the expression of that. And now, you know, it's changing. Some Something else will happen. Something else will happen. And it keeps differentiating itself like that. And it's the, the important thing is not the individual that is there. It's the precondition that makes it possible for this individual to be there. That's spot on. Because what the despot does, and this is what makes Trump possible, right? And in the same way, that it's not just the body of Caesar. It's not simply Trump himself. What made something like that possible is the transgression, right? So it's going to be that the despot is placed at the very limits of the uh, the, 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 the socius, in the sense of the territoriality. Very fundamentally, were those non-coded flows um, right at that horizon? Because when what what allows for this to take place, as Roger is saying, is that the, the affiliative and the alliant are basically challenged and recapitulated reconstituted and altered in this sense by the despot transgressing the incest taboo. And this is a special type of transgression because as we've said, incest is never possible in the first place because it's a representative of non-coded desires. You can't do the non-coded desires and do incest because they're not equivocal. Well, or excuse me, they're not univocal. They are equivocal. They're different. Um, so what the despot does, or rather what the, the paranoiac process allows here, is that the despot is able to transgress committing an incestuous act that effectively reorients the society by transgressing it. And what makes it interesting is basically the, the role of, they call it the despot, we could say the charismatic leader, uh, but they're, they're owed everything. The, the big shift becomes, uh, you know, the way that debt was experienced with the first socius uh, is as uh, sort of a part and parcel of how people gave things and took things and interacted sort of on the tribal level. But at this point now, uh, because what we did at the time, it, things, were, things were done for the earth. I, yep. That's exactly were, what I was going to say, debt to the and, earth. Things were done as a debt to the earth. It wasn't so much for Steve or for John or for Jack or for Brooks. It was like for the earth as like this, this all encompassing thing. And we were sort of 
Bari products on the surface of it, you could say. The difference with the despot is now he takes that role because now he's everything. And he, we don't owe him just a few things. We owe him literally everything. Uh, the despot, I shouldn't say him. Uh, generally, it has been a him. Um, but uh, that becomes an infinite and total debt uh, because of the transformation underneath him and because of how sort of society becomes organized. It's a debt, to quote, a debt, the debt becomes a debt of existence, a debt of the existence of the subjects themselves. So to quote Holland here, mm -hmm. and I really like this line, and it includes tribute, of course, which although paid in money, as we have said, remains a surplus value of code in it, in that it is extracted by seizing existing circuits of debt and expenditure obligations and turning them all towards the coffers of the despot. But the infinite debt, therefore, also includes wombs and the women who bear them e.g. the ten versions owed to a minotaur annual, annually, inasmuch as they circulate in the very same circuits of debt and expenditure as material goods do. So suddenly it's everything. It's my affiliation, my alliances, all is owed to the despot placed in that singular position. He, he needs to be careful there, though, because capital, so capitalism is not taking place at this point. Money doesn't function that way yet. And that's important here because when the tribune is paid, that is a production of surplus value. That is not the the money itself is not the surplus value of code. The money itself is part of the production of that surplus value of code. Um, yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, I just wanted to say that with regard to the despotism, um, I think the despot kind of affects an overcoding with regard to the existing system of filiation and alliance, and this also characterizes representation and despotism, which they associate with kind of structuralism and especially um, Lacan. Yeah, I can't speak to the last part, but that's absolutely correct. What the, the despot socius takes over right through the establishment of the state in that um, is going to be the process of overcoding, right? So this does not eradicate what happens in the primitive society. This does not eradicate the collective memory. This deterritorializes and re-territorializes it. This de, well, I shouldn't say shouldn't even say D and re, I should say this overcodes and perhaps even over-territorializes in the sense of literally laying over those blocks of code and memory um, and territory, right? There's an imbrication process that through things like the writing process, uh, through Tribune, right? Everything is, is sort of like, I think they even compare with the Brits and, and, and building a wall. If there was something there present, in the, the sense of the earth, right, as a foreground. This is a process of building on top of that, but not to negate it, very importantly, not to negate it or to eradicate it. The despotic, and this is very much important for understanding even something like Trump or in general what's going on in the world right now, the despotic serves to make that transgression against the primitive order in that sense. So it, it affirms it but also provides the something of an alternative to it. In fact, creates the alternative to it on top of that. Yes. Well, and, and the other part of this that becomes very interesting is how the death drive also sort of becomes a thing, the threat of death, how death is visited upon people because uh, the despot also by nature, because he is, uh, they are, the despot is apparently infallible, knows all, wants all, blah, blah, blah. They have, a, they come from a naturally hyper paranoiac place. So anything that is not what the despot wants is simply betrayal. That's it. Uh, 
just that's it. And it, it anything you don't want, kill. So at, at that point, suddenly uh, all of these uh, tribes that are part of this or men who are part of this that lose all of that sort of, I don't know, uh, self-determination, for example, after they've been con you know, uh, conquested, they, they talk about this a little bit, uh, quite a bit. Um, they now basically are threatened with death, and to quote, uh, the threat of death they now have reason to fear arises not so much from natural circumstance or the threat of ostracism from the group, which is true under savagery, as from the despot who wields the power of life or death over them. Now, death no longer appears as an accident or a fact of life, but now has become a permanent menace from on high, inflicted by force of arms and backed by the imperial state and systems of law. Obedience to the transcendent law of the despot is enforced not through branding the flesh, but by the threat of death. Uh, this, this changes the sort of, let's say, motivation or way things are recorded significantly. To quote from page 213, there occurs a detachment and elevation of the death instinct, which ceases to be coded in the interplay of savage actions and reactions in order to become the somber agent of overcoding, the detached object that hovers over each subject. Uh, this is why they call it uh, the system of terror, I believe. Yep. The theater of cruelty is transgressed uh, and actually reconstituted as the theater of... Um... Say that word for me one more time. Terror? Terror, thank you. Yeah, I, enjoy the, I enjoy a good terror. To that, though, I want to um, point out one thing. With these societies, right, the despot has a relation with um, what they're going to call perverts. So in the primitive society, the hunter, what they call like the bush uh, primitive, I think is what they, the term they use, they have right this prohibition where they can't eat the kill. They have to take it back and promulgate the debt. In doing so, there are village perverts. There are people who can work on this form of codification and this territoriality, right? This is, again, part of the alliance in that sense, or at least it has a very direct connection with it. In the same way, when we get into the despotic, the despot has his, um, I think they use the word bureaucratic perverts, but or even court perverts, however you like. There are people who, um, it's not even just people per se, but there are um, social machines or, or bodies, however you like, in relation to the despot that have a means of perverting them in that, right? That their power and such is enabled in relation to the despotic and those decrees and everything that we're talking about. But they also have the means to kind of uh, rework it in a sense or to kind of change it, which is why there's a kind of perverse element to it. Well, and the inscription on this, and this is where Lacan, I think, Angus, you were getting at a little bit earlier with uh, their sort of critiques on Lacan and how Lacan was looking at things. The, the nature of despotic and imperial inscription begins to uh, take a greater toll on us as well, because uh, prior to this, uh, you know, we, we would use pictograms, uh, you know, sounds, stories, words spoken, things like that. We didn't really have to spend in a place of, uh, spend our time in a place of interpretation. Things were fairly direct. Uh, uh, things were spoken of basically in terms of, I think they use this, they say, uh, organs of production and reproduction. You just spoke, rip, do this, that, blah, blah, blah. The difference now is that because it's written, uh, one, written is difficult because of all of the problems with words. We don't have to go into Derrida, we are, but we can do that. Uh, the written word is difficult. And so 
uh, and I, I'm just going to quote Holland because he nails it. Uh, writing no longer designates valued objects of desire while allocating them within a savage community. Writing now entails wanting to know what an absent other wants. This second pacification of the subject takes place. Accompanying the ever-present threat of death, desire no longer desires objects, but desires another's desire. Desires become desire of the despot's desire. Desire no longer acts in relation to the objects of value designated by collective ritual, but merely reacts to the written law promulgated by the despot. And this is, uh, this is a problem. Well, to, to, to finalize my, my previous point, writing can act as a kind of perversion, right? In relation to others. So um, I don't want to suggest that the perverts the intentionality is that of a, a conscious intentionality. What I'm getting at here is that with the despotic um, and this system of um, this territorial system taking place as it is in relation to the despotic socius, people and other things are produced in such a way that this, these perversions are going to happen. So in the same way that the hunter can't eat his kill, he has to take it back and promulgate the death that way. Right. It's no, it's not that the people there are going to take advantage of that per se, because they see a self-interest exploitation. They're going to be produced in such a manner that they're going to, um, the way they connect with this kind of production, which is constantly taking place, right? This is all part of the same process of production. They're going to pervert in the sense that it's, um, that it's just, it is part of the simple nature of that um, production in and of itself. They have to consume it. Yeah, I, I would. The hunter. So for me, I would say uh, for the hunter, uh, he doesn't really need to be told why uh, that he needs to not kill in the in the savage, the the primitive, because he understands uh, sort of the overall interests of the group he's in, his alliances, his affiliations. He's connected to people. He wants all of them to survive as well as himself. It's a different mentality overall. He doesn't he doesn't ask why. He doesn't need to. He's directly connected to it right in front of him. It's oh, it's he, those people that set up. He doesn't have to think about it. He has objects that he's able to point at with his with so, the production of desire. He yeah. doesn't have to think about it because he's produced as doing it. I think I yeah. I agree with you um in the sense that like yeah, absolutely like you know there's some uncertainty. I mean, there is a necessary degree of uncertainty built into like written promulgations, for instance, that come out from the despot. But I think that the way that they use perversion throughout, throughout the book, there's a tendency to associate it with re-territorialization. Um, for instance, like in fascism. Um, and I think that in that sense, it, it's meant to be like, what they mean is that, you know, the perversity of the bureaucrat is to like correctly interpret the despot in accordance with the um, despot's interests. So like they, um, they sort of smooth out these machinic redundancies or places where the text could be interpreted another way in order to bring it back to the body of the despot. Well, and, and this is the Lacanian turn uh, that I, I think they, they utilize it. And I think they agree with it here that we're talking about. Uh, it's not so much that they, they uh, want the despot to be happy. It's that they desire, uh, the desires match the other's desire. The desire is to be desired and to match that desire, which is 
complex, but it's because, uh, take the hunter example, a king uh, sends an edict that you may not kill any deer, uh, you may not eat any deer you kill, it must first be brought to the royal butcher. Uh, the, the why is a huge, huge question, I think, that you could have, but if immediately you go, well, it's because I, I, want what the, I want what the king wants, I want that, you then have to match your desires to that, and this becomes that sort of, you know, the effectively, uh, betrayal becomes the repressed represented here in, the, in this paralogism. Like, you, you don't want this, you're terrified of these things. I mean, so, so writing pushes this, Jack, very explicitly. Uh, writing pushes this because the, uh, the words on high coming from the despot, if it was just Steve the despot saying it to you, it wouldn't have the same setup. The, the, the nature of the written word and the eye that gazes upon it changes the relation to that sign. And that's the difficulty here, the sign of the word having its own meaning that I now have to divine that now tells me this is what the sign is. This is what is desired. And I have to then take that in and place that on my BWO in the same way that eventually sort of Oedipus will work where it's like, well, what do I, oh, I want desire. That's what I wanted. The, the words that are written in front of me matter less than the underlying sign that I take in and the meaning of these things that I take in because the written word is so unique. So I agree with you about the role of signif sign uh, as signifying that aspect comes into play as opposed to signifiers carved in the body. I agree with you there, but that also introduces an aspect of ambigu uh, ambiguity, which I think is the grounds of perversion. To a certain point, you don't necessarily have to match with the, the despot, right? Because there's, right, think the, the events are going to keep changing, right? In, in a certain sense, having a position in the court or the state gives one a capacity right, to sort of um, act in accordance, well, to be produced as acting in accordance with those desires, right? I can agree with that. Again, I think for here, what I'm talking about is not necessarily uh, a desire being shaped, but more the repressed representative of uh, betrayal, of, uh, you know, uh, hurting the king, whatever terms you want to use, uh, regicide, whatever, this, this, this hyper prohibition against betrayal becomes the prohibition that I now am taking as the repressed represented. It's not necessarily that I'm going to want what the king wants. It's I desire the king's desires because otherwise I'm going to be fucking killed. And if I see things and I take in signs, I need to interpret and take those in. And so the natural terror of representation matches with the terror of death. And that, that sort of pushes this into me. Yes, but it's a terror of life and death, right? It's a terror that functions to keep the desire connecting and everything, right? To promulgate. And like you were saying too, it's also a terror that works in relation to the death instinct, right? That makes it, if I remember correctly, latent in these productions. Yes. Well, it, and again, this is where the imperial writing, because because the words themselves are effectively subordinate to the absent voice of the despot, which is really what we're talking about here. We're talking about the voice of the despot and the whoever's in that role. We're talking about what Caesar's saying or the role of Caesar. Uh, the, the sort of nature of the text then is subservient to that, but still something I have to understand. So uh, the, the, the way, how to put it, the reality of the objects around me 
naturally then become subservient to the text and the voice that is trying to talk beyond them. Yes, but that that voice acting to to expand on that, right? That <clears throat> excuse me, that voice as the socius more effectively, right? Because what writing allows is the decontextualization of that voice, right? And to actually allow it for recontextualization. So again, something like an edict, right? With this aspect of signifying, there is a perversion not only of the um, of something like the material, right? Of, of utterance itself, but there's also a perversion in the sense of how it can be taken, right? And that perversion yes, well, can be any, any words trans- from the any words from the per, any words from the despot at this point are going to be castration. Period. That's that's what they're going to be turned into. Anything he says. Uh, to quote two page two fourteen, uh, the complex relationship of designation elaborated in the system of primitive connotation with its interplay of voice, graphism, and eye, here disappears in the new relationship. How could such designation subsist when the sign has ceased to be a position of desire in order to become this imperial sign, a universal castration that welds desire to law? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the law is embodied within the body of the despot also. You know, when you come down to uh, Foucault's notion of biopower, I think we can make a link here. Uh, When he talks about the sovereign power, it's, you know, the sovereign power or the sovereign as power of life and death over the population. But it's, it's basically the right to take a life or to let live so he, he becomes the site of organization of life and desire and you know when we further go into um into modernity it, it switches you know to uh, uh to make live and to let die so there's those reconfiguration of you know the administration of life and administration of desire that switches in those stages of society. I say stages, but not in a linear way, but in these forms of organization. But I will say, I also, uh, Jack, your point about desire itself being essentially ambivalent to this is not wrong. I don't, I don't disagree with that. And there is perversions that come from that. But I think at this point, we're talking about effectively for me, anti-production being what is done by the, uh, right, the socialist at large, the despot, by placing desire and demanding and having these written demands and having the setup creates extensive anti-production that effectively is blocking everything. And death essentially becomes the permanent threat. Desire is completely broken from any attachment to life or positive productive sort of creation uh, and becomes purely reactive to basically what Lacan would say, the other's uh, desire, desire of another's desire. Um, and I'm linking this to Foucault again because you know this this anti-production is is the basic of discipline. You know, it disciplines you into wanting and doing certain things because of this terror of this fear of death of being you know killed by the sovereign. So there's a switch. You know, when when you were linked to the collective body into a form of communion, now it's through fear. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. But my my point is to say too, though, that we don't want to make the mistake of like, it's not like the living in the sense is negated or like the um, the terror takes, it's not like it stops production, right? It's very much a feature of production in the same way cruelty is, right? Cruelty functions to force desire into production. Yeah. In the same way, I think terror, I mean, it's, it's not the same thing. 
but the it's still a process it's still affecting the process of production all right with that uh let's move on to the third socius uh and talk about how capitalism and capital changes things so one of the things uh what I just said is one of the first things I wanted to discuss and one of the things I made a note of when we were talking, Jack. Uh, the third socialist is not capitalism. Mercantilism of any sort and capitalism and having markets has been around for a long time. Capital in the way it is utilized and way it's handled is a different beast. And that is actually more accurate to say that is the socialist. Is that fair, Jack? Roger? Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with you there because we see capital and money functioning in um, the despotic, right? But it hasn't, it doesn't have this process of like quanta and everything, right? For the despotic, money functions, um, right? Basically, as a tribune that's going to um, circulate back to the despot. So money doesn't really have that kind of like commodification or anything. It's just going, it's basically a circular flow back to the despotic. Whereas capital and in the third socius is going to take the place of the despot and a lot is going to change. So let's talk about how those changes start. The first I think is uh, the system of inscription uh, for capital, which is uh, what we would call money effectively um, and how it operates. Anyone want to jump in? No, Paul, we spent the first hour like talking over each other, trying to figure out how to even discuss this goddamn chapter. Uh, so here's a question I'll put to everyone. Uh, do we want to, break now uh which i think is fine we've been going for two hours uh and we'll save capitalist representation uh we'll do this we can do that next week actually and make it a larger thing with capitalist representation followed by uh positive task of schizoanalysis i think those two things i think flow together pretty nicely and would be a way to end this does anyone disagree with that well i agree and i think you know we should <clears throat> think of what we said today and have a little introduction by summarizing what we've said. And it's going to be really easy to, uh, to go in. Yeah. I said a bunch of dumb shit up front. I'm glad Luke corrected me on some things, but God damn it. And I think Roger just volunteered to do the introduction. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> oh, my God. No, but that's the thing. You know, when you're saying, oh, I'm saying a bunch of dumb shit, there's no, there's no objective reality. You know? Oh, there that's we the go. Thing. That's the thing, but that's that's interesting because you know it's it's about perspective. It when we get into an ontology like Deleuze and Guattari, it's it's shifted or it shifts our perspective. You know, I've been I've been in this longer, but I've I learn a lot from you guys because I see the processes in which you're in, and I'm like, oh wow, okay, they get it, and I see how you're changing doing this, and it's really interesting because. Um, there's a whole, you know, when we talk about deterritorialization, re-territorialization, uh, that's, that's how the book acts on people. And it, there's no dumb stuff. It's approximation. And that's how you learn, you know. You learn by confronting reality, like testing stuff, finding affordances. So I might feel like that, but I think that, you know, this is how progress is being made. It's like learning the guitar, you know. You're going to... You're gonna buzz the the string. You're gonna do the wrong chords. You're gonna miss a time. But you know, it's it's true. This that you actually uh, shift from like being uh, a beginner to a more expert or advanced player. So that's the same thing with Deleuze and Guattari. So and and it offers you like a different view of society and yourself as well. 
I'll, I'll let that end it. This is that was solid. Thank you, Roger. Made me feel a little better about myself too. Um, all right. So uh, with that, um, let's do this next week, uh, next Monday, same time, same place. We'll see what we can. We'll we'll burn through this, um, and uh, maybe maybe make asses of ourselves in the meantime. But uh, thank you guys very much for joining. Uh, as always, please uh, check us out on Twitter, DNGQC, uh, Patreon, DGQC, a uh, bunch of other shit. Just get out there and say hi in the chats. We rearrange stuff. Really would love some more interaction. So just jump around, have some fun in there. And uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and say we're